Good morning, Gateway Church. Have I told you recently I love you? Well, I do. And I thank God for you, especially on this Thanksgiving weekend. In 1948, just 70 years ago, and then again in 1953, 75 years ago, a man by the name of Charles, or sorry, Alfred Charles Kinsey, published two reports which became bestsellers. The first one was called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, and the second one was entitled Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. These reports sparked a sexual revolution that we are still reeling from today. Kinsey's basic premise was that all human beings are sexual from birth. And abnormal sexual behavior was so common in the culture, it was to be considered normal. Though biased and fraudulent research, Kinsey claimed that all sexual behaviors considered deviant were normal. And exclusive heterosexuality was actually abnormal. And a product of cultural inhibitions and societal conditioning by traditional Judeo-Christian values. Thanks to psychologist Dr. Judith Reisman, we now know that Alfred Kinsey was a homosexual pedophile, and the Kinsey report was a fraud. Kinsey, a University of Indiana zoologist, pretended to be a conservative family man when, in fact, he seduced his male students and forced his wife and associates to perform in pornographic films. To prove that children have legitimate sexual needs, Kinsey and his fellow pedophiles either abused 2,000 infants and children and or relied on data obtained from Nazi concentration camps. But the Kinsey reports also inspired another man by the name of Hugh Hefner, who started Playboy magazine in 1953. Hefner said the Kinsey report produced a tremendous sexual awakening, largely because of the media attention. And with messianic fervor, Playboy took its message of sexual freedom to North American males. Playboy's aim, and the aim of all pornographers, was to hook men on the glossy fantasy. Today, sexual deviancy, promiscuity, and sexual addiction is at an all-time high. According to the Conquer series, 60 to 70% of men, 50 to 58% of pastors, and 20 to 30% of women have sexual addictions. And the internet and computers and smartphones have made access to pornography as quick and easy and secretive as going click. The U.S. is now the number one exporter of porn to the rest of the world, and the evil industry is worth upwards of $100 billion a year. More money than Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NBA combined are worth. And porn sites get more visits per month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. We have a catastrophic plague on our hands, not just in the culture, but in the evangelical church. So why does this matter? Human beings are sexual creatures. 
Why can't we act out whatever sexual desire and fantasy we want? I mean, why, why can't we believe in Jesus and do whatever we want? One reason. God is holy. Who God is, is holy. He is holiness itself. And his desire is that people would be holy. My title this morning is Holiness. And my text is from Isaiah chapter 6. If you would turn there, please. We're going to read the first seven verses. I want to look today at three questions. What is holiness? Why is it important? And how do we become holy? And you actually have notes in your bulletin there. I've tried to write out all the scriptures for you, so I won't always refer to the scriptures or quote them, but the scriptures are there, and I trust you'll be able to study them and follow it up. The word holy is used over 600 times in the Bible in its different forms. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, both the Hebrew and Greek words mean the same thing. First of all, holiness means moral excellence and purity and righteousness. But secondly, and primarily, holiness means to be set apart, to be separate. It literally comes from the word to cut or to separate from the profane. Now, as soon as we start talking about holiness, there's probably some people that are thinking about a dull, boring, narrow-minded, dour God who doesn't want us to have any fun, who's a killjoy, and who just wants us to be dutifully unhappy, but holy. And you couldn't be more wrong. The Bible is full of amazing illustrations and glimpses of the holiness of God. And what happens when we as human beings encounter God's Holiness, And we're going to look at one of these today. Extraordinary encounter where Isaiah meets the God who is holy. Let's read this starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that the word of God gives us glimpses into who you are and the Holy Spirit 
reveals and gives us understanding about those glimpses. And we're asking for that this morning. I'm asking that you will baptize us as a people in the fear of the Lord. That our eyes would be opened today to see your glorious holiness in a new way. And that you will make us holy. In the name of your mighty and majestic son, Jesus. Amen. God opens the curtains of heaven here. He stretches the curtain back and he lets the prophet Isaiah see the Lord of hosts. But Isaiah begins in verse 1 by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah begins by contrasting two kings. Uzziah is Judah's king of the 8th century BC who reigned 52 years and started reigning at the age of 16. He was the last great spiritual reformer. He was a great military and economic leader who did what was right in the Lord's eyes until he violated God's holiness in the temple by doing something he was never supposed to do. He did the priestly offering and God struck him with leprosy. And for the rest of his days, he was in isolation. But Isaiah says, the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. One who will never die because he's the eternal Lord. He's the king of kings. And notice in verse 1 and verse 3, the, the word Lord is used two times there, but in the NASB and the King James Version, they're spelled differently. In verse 1, Lord is spelled capital L and lowercase letter, letters, and it's the most in, exalted title in the Old Testament for God. It's the word Adonai, and it means God is the absolute supreme sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. But in verse 3, the word Lord is used again, only this time it's all capital letters. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's not the title of God. It's the name of God. And that name was so sacred, the Jews couldn't even let it come off their lips. And you'll remember where that name first came from. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and he told Moses he was planning to bring his children out of Israel. And he said, Moses, I'm asking you to go to Pharaoh. And Moses said, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And he said, Moses, I'll be with you. And then Moses said, well, what should I call you? What's your name? And he says, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. There's no other name like that. And there is no one, no one in the universe who can use that name except God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. 
You'll remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Isaiah sees a new king high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. Kings and queens' trains reflected their majesty and their importance. There was a status. The length of their train was a a measure of their status. And it was animal furs, leopards and lions and tigers and felt. And sometimes they had both. And, And here's a picture of Queen Elizabeth II inauguration. And you can see her train. Her train was 21 feet long. It took a couple of pages to carry it. 6.5 meters. And it had fur around it. And it was velvet. Very impressive. But the Lord's train filled the temple. Someone's actually calculated how much fabric it would have taken to fill that temple. Not 21 feet, 331 miles of fabric. This is no ordinary king. This is the Lord, high and lifted up, extraordinary in his majesty, breathtaking in who he is. There was never ever a king like this king. And the heavenly creatures called the seraphim, which literally means the burning ones with six wings, were standing above the throne. And with two wings, they covered their face and to their feet and two, it says they flew. They covered their face because they were in the unveiled presence of the almighty And his radiance and majesty was so brilliant, they couldn't even look on it. And these heavenly creatures were calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The only other time in scripture we have that refrain is in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 where the four living creatures in Revelation are saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. You know, when we want to emphasize something in our culture, We bold it. We put bold print or we underline it or we highlight it or we put exclamation marks or quotation marks. But the Jews used repetition. In fact, in Jesus' day, you'll remember, Jesus would often say, truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, amen, amen. Jesus is emphasizing how important that is. And here, we see the absoluteness of emphasis. These seraphim are not just saying, holy is the Lord. They're not just saying, holy, holy is the Lord. They're saying, holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're emphasizing the supremacy and absoluteness of God's holiness. And you'll notice no other place in the Bible does it ever say, love, love, love. Or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Only with his holiness. And that's because God is holy. It's who he is. Holiness is not an attribute of God, like mercy or love or kindness or patience. Holiness is his whole essence. It's his whole nature. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. His kindness is holy. It's in another realm. All holiness comes from God, and no holiness exists apart from God. He alone is holy, and he alone has the power to make holy. God is holy means God is set apart. He's above all else. He's separate from all of creation. He's set apart from sin. He's set apart from impurity. He's set apart from corruption. He's set apart from unrighteousness. He has no comparison, no competition, no rivals. He's unmatched, unequaled. He is in a class all his own. He is set. Apart, he's holy. That's why idolatry is so evil. And it's such an infinite insult to the God of holiness because we're making something more important and more valuable than the holy God. The triune God of the Bible is totally holy. Totally separate, totally other. That's why many times throughout the scriptures when people encountered the holy God, they fell on their faces. In Leviticus chapter 9, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, all the Israelites, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering on the altar and all the pieces of fat. And when the people saw it, They shouted and fell face down. That's the holiness of God. And God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He said, take off your sandal. This is holy ground. And the Bible says Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. That's the holiness of God. When Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's host, he falls on his face to the earth and worships. That's the holiness of God. When Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, make an offering to the Lord when he appeared to them, the flame goes up towards heaven from the altar, and the angel of the Lord goes up in the flame. And when Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell on the ground with their faces, and they said, Surely we shall die, for we've seen the Lord. That's holiness. 
When Peter falls on his knees in the boat after a miraculous catch of fish, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's the holiness of God. And when Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration hear the very voice of God thundering, they fall to the ground and were terrified. They've just encountered the holiness of God. And then John on the island of Patmos, when he sees the holy Jesus, he falls at his feet as if he were dead. He's encountered the holiness of God. God's holiness is both exhilarating and terrifying. And you and I were made for his holiness. The first reason holiness is important is because God himself is holiness. The second reason holiness is important is because God commands us to be holy. 1 Peter 1, quoting Leviticus 9, Peter says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is speaking to his people. That's why we can't promote gender blurring and rewriting moral behavior in the 21st century. We can't rewrite what's holy and what's not holy. Only God can do that. NFL quarterback and ESPN commentator Joe Theismann allegedly explaining to his soon-to-be ex-second wife why he had an affair, said to her, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Sorry, Joe. Life is not just about happiness. It's about being holy. God commands us to be holy. And the Bible also tells us in Hebrew 12, without holiness, we can't see God. Jesus said this, he emphasized this when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the holy in heart, for they shall see God. And if there's no holiness, there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Of God. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says, Make very sure of this. Anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ. Holiness is really important. Lastly, Isaiah describes the impact God's holiness has on human beings. In verse 5, he says, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm literally coming apart in the presence of God's holiness. And he sees he's a man of unclean lips, and he dwells among a people of unclean lips, for his eyes have seen the holiness of God. God makes us aware. God's holiness makes us aware of how unholy we are. But he doesn't leave us there, and he didn't leave Isaiah there. The burning one took a burning coal from the altar, and he touched Isaiah's lips. And he said, your guilt 
is gone. Your sin is forgiven. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of sanctification or God making us holy. How do we become holy? It's a process of God. And it involves both God's work and my work. At the moment of salvation, and by the way, if you are not saved this morning, if you're either watching on the live stream or you're here this morning, and you're not saved, you haven't surrendered to Jesus, you haven't said yes to Jesus, you might even believe in Jesus. You might be convinced that Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way, but you've never said yes to him. You've never surrendered to him. You can be saved this morning. He's eager. God is eager to bring his salvation to us. And when he does, when we're saved, a number of things happen to us all at once. First of all, you're regenerated. God imparts new life to you through the resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus said you become born again. You're a new creation in Christ. Secondly, you are justified. Brought up to the righteous standard of Christ. God declares you righteous. Verdict, not guilty. Righteous in Christ. And thirdly, you're adopted You are embraced into God's very family and made a co-heir with Christ. You are a son and a daughter of God Almighty with all the privileges and rights of such. All these things happen to us at salvation. We have no part in it at all. It's God's work and God's work alone. It happens instantly and it's once and for all. However, something else happens to us at salvation. We're sanctified. We're made holy or set apart. Now, sanctification is a little tricky because there's three parts to it. And if you get this wrong, you're always going to struggle in your Christian walk. You're always going to be in like a fog about what's happening. Let me explain it to you. There's three parts to sanctification. Part one is being sanctified in our past. 1 Corinthians 6 says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That happened to us at the moment of salvation. We were freed from the power of sin. Sin did not have any control over us anymore. It was something that Jesus Christ did, and we get the benefit of it. That's being sanctified in our past. And then there's a part three of sanctification, where we will be fully sanctified in the future. Hebrews 12, 23, talking about heaven and eternity, talks about men made perfect. Once we die and go to be with the Lord, holiness and sanctification will be completed. We will be set free, not just from the power of sin, but the presence of indwelling sin and made completely perfect. Isn't that wonderful? 
You don't seem very excited about that. I think that is absolutely wonderful. And don't you wish we could just go from stage one to stage three? From we're sanctified in the past, and then we go into eternity, and we're made perfect. But that's not the way it works. There's a stage two between one and three. And stage two of sanctification is being sanctified in our present. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy, the NIV says. Part two of sanctification is a process of making us holy. It's progressive, it's ongoing, it's throughout our lifetime. We are being made holy. We're not only freed from the power of sin when we get saved, but as we walk with Jesus, we're being freed more and more from the practice of sin. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 says that when we look upon the Lord, when we behold the Lord, he changes us, he transforms us, From glory to glory, there's that progressive stage again into his likeness. And you know, sometimes Jesus can do things instantly. I'm sure there's a number of people today who have experienced that. An area of your life where Jesus instantly makes you holy or sets you apart or sanctifies you. Bob Mumford, who was a a wonderful prophetic teacher uh, a number of decades ago, he's still alive But when he was a young sailor, he used to swear like a sailor. He could curse. He didn't even know he was doing it. It just came out. It was such a habit. But when he got saved as a young man or a young sailor, instantly the swearing stopped. Just like Isaiah with the coal to his lips. Jesus had taken a coal to his mind and his heart and his lips and that habit was broken and he was set free and he never swore again. It was an amazing work. And God does that. But always there's this progressive work of holiness going on in each one of us. And God doesn't do the work of holiness in our lives by himself. We're being made holy is an ongoing work of God and us cooperating. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, that's God's part. Since we have stage one and all that Jesus has accomplished, let us purify ourselves, that's our part, from everything that contaminates, perfecting holiness. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. He says, count yourselves dead to sin. That's stage one, what Jesus accomplished. We've been freed from the power of sin. But he goes on to say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's our part. It's God's part and our part. So how do we become holy in a culture that's increasingly unholy? It's not by trying harder. It's not by comparing ourselves to others. It's not by living by a set of rules. And it's not by majoring on externals like wearing certain kinds of clothes or driving a horse and buggy. 
not using makeup or jewelry or modern technology. We don't become holy by what we do on the outside. We become holy by what we do on the inside. Let me give you four practical steps of how we become holy. Number one, remember who you are. God, the holy God, dwells in you. And you dwell in the holy God. Colossians 3.3 says that our lives are hid with God in Christ. And Galatians 2 says that it's Christ who now lives in me. Remember who you are. Holy God in you and you in the holy God. You are a carrier of God's holy presence. You have the Holy Spirit within you, encouraging, lifting, guiding, directing, empowering. When we live as a lover of God's presence, we spend time in his presence. We read his word, we pray, we listen in prayer. We don't attain holiness. We avail ourselves of God's holiness. We don't reach for holiness. We receive the holiness of God himself. Remember who you are. When we live before the face of God, when we live as children of light, God makes us holy. Holiness is not found in our efforts, but in our connection with the holy God. When you go to a porn site, how can the Holy Spirit go with you? When you carry bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, how can the Holy Spirit be with you? When we gossip and slander and do things that grieve the Holy Spirit, how can he support us? Remember who you are. Holiness is all about abiding in Jesus. And that's what our set free and our hearing God seminars are all about. They're about equipping us and freeing us to have intimate communion with the holy God. The second practical step is ask for help. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, God hasn't called us to impurity, but he has called us to holiness. And when we disregard that, we disregard God who has given us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it's to your advantage I go away. Because if I do, I will send another helper, one just like me, who will be with you forever. God has called us to his holiness, but he hasn't left us alone. Holiness without God is legalism. But Jesus has given us the helper. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year, forever and ever. 
And he wants to help you. He is waiting to help you. For crying out loud, he's the Holy Spirit. How do we get holiness? We have a Holy Spirit. We have a set apart spirit. We have a separate spirit in us who is wanting to help us, enable us, empower us, encourage us, guide us, direct us, lead us, convict us with his holiness. Oh, he wants to help us. He wants to answer your cry for help. Ask him questions. Ask for wisdom. Ask for the fear of the Lord. Ask and keep on asking because he wants to answer. Thirdly, work with God. We got to work with God. That this is not some passive thing. Hebrews 12 says, strive for holiness. That word strive means to run quickly, put to flight. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have a responsibility. It's an effort. It's a work. We can't be lazy. We can't be complacent. We can't just say, oh, that's God's problem. No, he wants us to cooperate with him. Doing the right thing is not always easy. Having devotions is work. It's effort. It's not always easy. Studying the Bible, praying. These things aren't easy. It takes work. But even here, he helps us. Because Philippians 2 verse 12 doesn't end with work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It ends with for God is at work in you to make you willing and able to obey him. If God changes our desire when we ask him so that we want to do the right thing. And if God gives us the power to do the right thing, what's left to do? Just do the right thing. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, do the right thing. (laughs) This is the message of grace. God acting in our lives. And lastly, the fourth practical step is embrace God's discipline. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Were you a runner when you were a kid? How many of you got spanked? Whoa, that's awesome. That's why you're such wonderful people. Well, if you got spanked and you were a runner, you know what you did. As soon as the threat came, boom, you were off. And sometimes your parents would have to chase you around the table and tackle you in order to give you. You don't want to be a runner with God. Oh, it's painful with God. The holy God is a father who loves us so much, he will discipline us so that we can share in his holiness. Some of you are under that discipline right now, and you don't even know it. Some of you may be under it, and you're running. You're resenting, you're resisting, you're blaming other people. Many years ago, 
Mary, and I have her permission to tell this. Mary uh, got offended with somebody, and she just couldn't get free of it. And it worked its way in and down and just got worse and worse. And not only did it get worse, but life got worse. She felt resisted. She felt troubled. She felt all kinds of pushback in her life. Everywhere she turned, there seemed to be trouble. And she was frustrated by it. And during one of our prayer times, the Lord took the veil away and spoke to her and let her see what was going on. He said, Mary, you know what it's like for my wind to be at your back. But now you know what it's like for my wind to be in your face. I'm resisting you because of your offense and your resentment and your pride. I have to resist you. Mary got up from the prayer time. She disappeared into the bedroom, closed the door. She laid on her face and she wept before God. She poured her heart out. Forgive me, Lord. You see, our resentment isn't just against other people. It's against Christ. He died to set us free. And she had the dealings of God. She was under the discipline of God. She received the discipline. And she came out of that bedroom. She was a new person. She went straight to the phone. She called this person. And she confessed her sin and her resentment and her offense. And she asked for forgiveness. And she was forgiven. And then, in the midst of it, the Holy Spirit put his finger on four other issues and attitudes and relationships. And she made four other phone calls and just acknowledged how wrong it was. And when she was done, she was a different person. Her joy had returned. Her peace had returned. Her love had returned. And her holiness had increased. Let me tell you about the holiday from hell. Years ago, we went on a holiday down to Minneapolis. Ten days we were supposed to be gone. And I was not in a good place. I was actually jealous of what was going on in another church. And the jealousy had shut off the life of God. And there may be somebody here this morning who's struggling with jealousy. Jealousy's a killer. And it just shuts the door to the grace of God. Anyway, I was in a mood. We're going on holidays and we're driving down. I can picture it in our van. We're going down Highway 59. And I'm locked up in my own little selfish world, feeling sorry for myself. And my family's back excited about the holiday. And finally Mary says to me, hey, What's the matter? Nothing. That's the first sin. Not walking in the light. Of course there's something wrong. Everybody knows there's something wrong. But I didn't deal with it. So I tried to perk up. I tried to fake it, but it wasn't working. We get to Minneapolis. We go to a mall. And I back the van into this parking space. And I hit a brand new gold Toyota. I went, oops. I got out. It was, it was sparkling gold. And there was a hole 
in the gold bumper. I got back in the car. The family said, yeah, everything's okay. I drove to another parking spot, parked over there. And as we're walking into the mall and we go past the car, Rebecca says, Daddy, aren't you going to leave a note? I said, of course I'm going to leave a note. So I got out a piece of paper and uh, left a note, and it was raining. I thought, there's no way this note is going to survive the rain. I'm good. So I put the note on. We walked in. Things just went from bad to worse. The baby was crying. I had to drive around the parking lot at 4 in the morning. Mary and I weren't getting along. The first four days were horrible. And it culminated when one of our other daughters got sick and we had to take her to the hospital. And when we took her to the hospital, Mary and I weren't getting along very well. I said, you take her in the hospital. I'm taking the girls for a ride. And I drove out down the high with the freeway there in Minneapolis. And when I came to a light, I went through the light too early, a motorcycle turned. I just about hit the motorcycle. He slid down under my bumper. Before I knew it, there were sirens and wheels. Everybody was crowded around. And I thought, oh, great. I want to die. Now I got to tell Mary I hit a motorcycle. So we go back to the hospital. We get, I, I tell her, I says, you what? So we go into it, and getting out of the van, I trip and fall out of the van and fall down, and the whole family laughs at me. <laughs> and that was it. I thought, that's it, I'm finished. It was the discipline of the Lord. Now, not every bad circumstance in life is discipline, but He uses things to get at us. I went into the hotel room, I laid on the bed. We had a little book called Calvary Road about the power of Jesus' cross and how it deals with selfishness. Mary threw the book at me. She said, hey, read this. We're going to the pool, and when we come back, you better be different. I started to read the book. And I had a helper. I had the Holy Spirit helping me, convicting me. And as I read it more and more, not being like a snake that strikes out at people, a conviction came on me and I said, Lord. I got off the bed, I knelt down, I started to cry, I confessed my sin. And I felt this weight lift off me. I was sharing in his holiness. And he was helping me. The holy God was helping me. The girls and Mary came back from the pool. I was a different person. I got down. I asked all their forgiveness. We made up. And the rest of the six days were the holiday from heaven. But it was the discipline of the Lord. Maybe you're under the discipline of the Lord. Maybe God's dealing with you. Maybe you just need to remember who I am in God and God in me.
Maybe you need to ask for help more. Maybe you need to put a little more effort and work with him and ask him to change your desires. Or maybe you just need to surrender to his discipline and say, Lord, deal with me. Let's stand together.